in the summer of 1962, a shy fifth grader moved with his mother and stepfather to a Los Angeles suburb where his mother urged him and encouraged him to make new friends in the neighborhood. Making new friends can be a challenge for anyone, especially a shy fifth grader. He's invited to join a group of boys who play baseball daily in a local sandlot, but is embarrassed by his inability to catch or throw a ball, two key components to playing the game of baseball. In an attempt to play catch with his stepfather, Bill, it resulted in a black eye because Bill said, son, keep your eye on the ball. It was a tragedy. Over the course of the summer, he did grow closer to his new friends, Ham, Squint, Yaya, Benny, and others. But toward the end of the summer, Benny Rodriguez, also sometimes called Jet, hit a home run over the fence with their last baseball, a fence that housed the infamous beast. So the boys knew there was no retrieving that baseball. Smalls, the shy fifth grader, wanting to impress his friends, remembered that his stepfather had a baseball at home signed by some lady named Baby Ruth or something like that. So he retrieves the ball so that they can continue to play, but alas, they hit another home run, putting that signed baseball over the fence with Beast, landing the boys in the biggest pickle they had ever experienced. Now, I don't want to ruin the end of the story for you, but it is my understanding that they have made a movie about this whole thing. But these boys were in a pickle. They were in a bind. Pickle is a baseball term for that moment that a baseball runner, a base runner is caught between two bases in a rundown, and they're trying to avoid getting tagged from either side. It's a tight spot. It's a quandary. It's a predicament. And this morning in verses 19 through 26, in the verse this first verse of Philippians, we find Paul in a pickle. Or, as the King James Version states, and is obviously the title of the sermon, in a straight betwixt two. I don't know why you have to say it with an English accent, but you do. He's in a straight betwixt two. It's like something out of, out of uh, Robin Hood, like he split his arrow in twain. So Paul, according to the King James Version, was in a straight betwixt two, in a pickle. A tight spot. So our time this morning is going to be spent trying to understand this situation and how Paul's faith in Jesus helps him. Now, as we lean into the story, tone is very, very important. Um, if I were to tell you this morning, um, we're glad you're here, and we're going to be we're going to be hearing from a man who's in prison uh, because he was preaching the gospel, and this man feels like his best option is death. What would you assume about the tone of the morning? You probably assume it to be very somber, uh, maybe a tone of sadness, grief. It, it could be generally depressing considering this man in prison who thinks his best option is death. You might read the text something like this, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that, that this will turn out for my deliverance. For me to live as Christ but to die as gain to die is, is better. My desire is to, to depart and be with Jesus, for that is far better. You could read it in a depressed tone, but church, it's not a depressing tone this morning. 
Remember, it's the summer of joy here at Cross Point. We're not going to bring it down a notch. Somehow, Paul is in prison. Wrongly, we're going to get into all that. But it is a tone of joy. It is not the case this morning. So in the verse right before chapter 19, there at the end of 18, he, he says this, um, which helps us to see Paul is responding to those who would kind of kick him while, his down, while he is down and then capitalize on the fact that he's in prison so that they can preach the gospel and become more popular. Like, that's pretty wrong, right? And so Paul's responding and he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, and then we get to our text, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So, as our fifth and sixth graders in our Howard Hendricks study, we recently, we learned that we have to ask if you see a for or a therefore, you ask what's the therefore, therefore. I almost want to say it all together like we did as a class, but, but like really, it's like if you see a four, you say, what, what is that there for? And for this one, the four that begins our text is explaining why Paul is rejoicing. So he's saying, I, I'm, I'm in a state of joy. I'm rejoicing that the gospel is going forward even in my circumstance. Four, and he's explaining why. We're going to find out the reason that this man can be imprisoned for preaching the gospel while others are capitalizing on his absence to make much of themselves and be, remain in a state of joy, to have a posture of rejoicing. I think the challenge for us is a lot of times when we find ourselves in a spot we don't want to be in, we change our posture, right? I'm not, I don't feel like worshiping because I've had a bad week, things like that. And so that's part of our challenge this morning from Paul. Understanding Paul's joy can be found in the central statement of the text this morning, which is, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. To understand his joy, we have to understand that statement, but understanding the statement can be tricky. So I'm going to explain that to you with a little bit of congregational participation. You all ready? You feeling good? This is always a total gamble, right? This could go terribly wrong, but I believe in you. So we're going to have some congregational participation right now where I'm going to say a word, and then I just want you all to collectively say the opposite of that word. Okay? Are, are we ready? That was not promising. We're going to give it a go. Here we go. Yes. So good. I nailed that. Up. Hot. Life. Y'all got the last one wrong. You were doing so good. The first three, you nailed it, but the last one, the opposite of life is death. I would have answered the same way, but that's actually where we're wrong. That's what's so shocking about our text this morning. Paul's predicament, this pickle that he's in, this straight betwixt two, is not that he's in prison for preaching the gospel. He's not in a situation of saying, good night. I want to preach the gospel, but when I do, they put me in jail, so i got to get out of jail so I can preach the gospel, and it's sort of he's running between the bases trying not to get tagged. That's not the predicament. Watch this. Watch this. In Paul's mind, it says the reason, he says, I'm hard-pressed between these two things. And what are the two things that he's between? Well, he has two possibilities. One is life, which he says, says is, a, is hard work. And the other is death. And the predicament that Paul is in is as he's sitting in this jail, wrongly imprisoned, he's like, man, I'm in a predicament because both of those 
are dang good options. Is that what you expected? That's our, that's our pickle this morning. Paul is saying, I could live and it'd be a lot of hard work for other people. Man, that's a good option. It's a good option over here. And then he comes over here and he says, or I could die. We'll be with Jesus. That's, a, that's, a good, that's, that's actually better for me. That's what he says in the text. He says, it's better for me to do this. So the, the quandary, the, the predicament Paul's in is he's like, I don't know which one to choose because they're both good options. He's literally in prison and he's like, this is a win-win. To li- he could say it this way, to live is Christ and to die is Christ. Life and death aren't the opposite. He could say to, to live is gain and to die is gain. Because of his identity in Christ, Paul no longer sees life and death as opposites. Christ changes everything for him. Because of his identity in Christ, his satisfaction in Christ, Paul no longer sees life and death as opposites. Or to say it another way, when Paul says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance, he's not talking about being delivered from prison. He's also not even talking about being delivered from execution. That's what I would think, right? Y'all keep praying because I don't want to be executed and I don't want to be in jail. He's not talking about deliverance from prison and he's not talking about deliverance from execution. He never even mentions it. The deliverance he speaks of is less concerned for what he's being delivered from and more concerned of through the two options, the win-win options, are what he might be delivered to. In Paul's mind, remember Paul says in the next chapter, he says, I want you to have this mind among you. His goal is for the church to share in the mindset he has, and that's what he's doing this morning. He wants us to have his mindset. And in Paul's mind, deliverance from life is actually deliverance into, into death, but Christ conquered death, so if he's delivered from life, he's delivered into the presence of Jesus. And he's like, I'm good with that. He has no fear of that. Or he, he says... Um, Deliverance from death, so, and that's what he thinks is going to happen. He's like, I don't think it's time for me to die. So deliverance from death is actually deliverance into an even more fruitful life with Christ. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So for him, it is a win-win. Fruitful labor or death. And I wonder how many of us spend the majority of our lives trying to avoid hard work and death, right? I mean, if we're honest this morning, how many of us try really hard to avoid hard work and death? And Paul's like, that's my only two options, and I'm calling it a win-win. It's a good thing. So I think that we can understand this with with a couple of, of key points. The first one is this. Satisfaction in Christ is better than anything that life can offer. Satisfaction in Christ is better than anything life can offer. What we see here is that Paul's satisfaction in Jesus changes the way he views life. And that's the way it's supposed to be for all of us here today. And not just parts of his life. This is an all-encompassing reality for Paul. There's no off-limits areas of his life anymore because he's so utterly satisfied in who his Savior is for him. So, it changes the way he approaches things. Like he might think, man, I'm having some struggling in my parenting. How can I be a better parent? But really the question becomes, how can I honor Christ in my parenting? His goal 
is, is to honor Christ, to glorify Christ, to boast in Christ, to magnify Christ. So he could say, rather, you know, he wasn't married, but if it was a marriage thing, it was like, okay, I want, if there are, I want my marriage to be healthier. The, the question when, you, when you're satisfied in Christ is, how, how can I honor Christ in my marriage? I want my financial situation to be healthier. How do I do, how do, how do I honor Christ in my finances and in stewardship? I want healthier friendships. I want to have you know, fun with my friends. Well, how can I honor Christ in friendship? Because Christ has a plan for all of those things. He has a plan for marriage. He has a plan for your friendships, for your finances, for your parenting. He doesn't expect you to just wing it. He says things that are incredibly helpful that give us a satisfaction that is greater than anything this world can offer. The other part of that is that when you, when you really believe, like, man, my whole purpose is to honor Jesus... It eliminates a lot of other options immediately, right? Does anyone in here struggle with the whole I want what I want when I want it thing? Put your hands up. Come, are you kidding me? No, just you, sir. No. Yeah, yeah, I want what I want when I want it. It's not just something your kids struggle with generally. I mean, it usually goes like this. Man, I want to buy, oh, look. I have a little app here and I can just buy whatever I want whenever I want it. And then when you do that, your brain has a little dopamine hit, and it makes you happy. You're like, well, this is fun. And, it, and, and you put your phone away, and it, it lasts for a little bit. Usually before too long, it kind of wears off. You know, I want to get something else. And you just do that. And so if there, there are so many different things that the world can offer. There's lots of offerings. There's lots of opportunities. But for us... Anything that doesn't honor Christ is a very quick and easy elimination, right? Like, if I want what I want when I want it, and it means I have to sin, or I have to go back on my, my, my moral or ethical compass, then, then that's an option that's quickly eliminated, because our aim is to honor Christ. If I have to break the law to get what I want, okay, that's an easy no, because it doesn't honor Christ. And so, it's all-encompassing and eliminates these other options. And the other thing is, for Paul... The satisfaction in Christ makes it to where he values the prayers of others more. Or to say it another way, satisfaction in Christ reveals our need for other people. It reveals our need for other people. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not talking about codependency. Okay, because that's a real thing. Like, this isn't saying when you're satisfied in Jesus, you constantly will need the approval of other people. It's saying something very different. It doesn't mean we need the approval of others, but what Paul is saying is God calls not individuals to himself, but he calls a people for his own possession. A church, ecclesia, and, and he calls us to himself, and so because of that, we don't have this lone ranger sort of thing going on in life. When you, you might think, well, man, when I'm satisfied with Jesus, it's, I'm good, it's just me and Jesus, and I don't need anybody else because they're just going to screw it up. Because they don't always think the right way, which is my way. So if everybody can leave me and Jesus alone, we're going to be just fine. And that's not the way it works. So you don't need the approval of others, but you do need their prayers. You need their encouragement. You need their reminders. You need their text messages that say, stay the course. I know it's hard, but I love you and I'm praying for you. It's not codependency. It's faithful relationships in Jesus. You need people. Scripture says comfort others with the comfort with which you've been comforted. 
So when someone else comforts you, 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 you receive it, and it is a blessing, and it is this thing that you have because of Jesus, and then you're a vessel that takes that and comforts others. It doesn't terminate on you. And it's this beautiful interdependence that we have because of our satisfaction in Jesus. It also is fruitful labor for others. You see what Paul says? He said that if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And then he goes on to explain that in verse 24. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Satisfaction in Christ embraces fruitful labor for other people, for their progress and for their joy. Ed Welch wrote a book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And if you're sitting here this morning and you struggle with worrying too much about what other people think, sort of that, that, that unhealthy side of needing others, constantly needing approval, I don't know if there's a much better resource than Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. But he has a quote that I want to share, from you, uh, share with you this morning. It says, the greatest need of all humanity is that God be acknowledged and worshipped as the Holy One of Israel. Do you believe that? If you've watched the news this week, can you watch the news and then say, the greatest need of all of humanity is for God to be worshipped as the one true God, as the Holy One of Israel. That is what is needed. He goes on to say, it takes the entire church, the entire universal church, to provide a vague imitation of the glory of God. Like on our best day, when we are tracking and we are preserving unity and we are not fighting with each other, it's like a tiny piece of the glory of God seen in his people. What do we really need? He goes on to say, we need to be a corporate body smitten by the glory of God, committed to the unity of the church. They lose by his love and faithful as we walk together in obedience to him, even in our suffering. And he makes this statement. We need to need other people less so that we can love them more. So you need them, but you need them in a healthy way. You don't need them in this codependent sort of, I need the approval of men, I'm fearful, I'm anxiety, when, full of anxiety when I don't have the approval of other people. Because if that's what happens, you're going to change the truth so they like you. Right? Paul's like, I preached the gospel in, in, in clarity and I showed them who Jesus is and they put me in jail. Next time, because I really care about their approval, I'm going to modify that so maybe I don't get put in the clank. Do you, do you see how that plays out? If you, if you need the approval of others when it comes time to share truth, well, sometimes truth is, well, it doesn't matter what it is. Truth is truth. It's an absolute reality. It's not this subjective thing. And so if you need people too much, you can't love them the way that God calls you to love them. You, 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 you have to need people less so that you can love them more. For example, if my goal this morning was like, I just want people to really give me high fives after I preach and tell me it was good, then I'm probably not going to say the hard things. I'm going to skip over the hard parts because I wouldn't want to offend anybody. You, in, you inevitably end up modifying truth if you need the approval of people too much. But the call is to love them, and you can't do both of those things. So need people less so that you can love them more. The ESV has a note that says, the world is too perilous and the gospel too glorious for the church to be content with past achievements. Let me read that again. The world is too perilous and the gospel is too glorious for the church to be content with past achievements. 
Church culture has a tendency to really love those past achievements. How many, how many people get stuck talking about the glory days, right? We speak of the way church used to be as if that was the only time it was ever good. That's not true. It's like Israel saying, oh, that we were back in Egypt when our bellies were full. That's stupid. Kids, you can only use the word stupid in reference to sin, and that's what that was. But like, our, our, we have this vision. We look back, and it's like, man, I just wish it was like that. We did the, the Past achievements, it, the, the world is too perilous. The gospel is too wonderful for us as churches to just lean on our past achievements. We should be wholeheartedly leaning forward to be stewards of every opportunity that God puts in front of us. We should care about people deeply because past achievements are not enough. You hear it. It's, it's an echo you'll hear through the whole letter to the Philippian church. So for Paul, the way of Jesus and the life of service were inseparable. Let me say that again. The way of Jesus, if I'm a disciple of Christ, if I call myself one apprenticing under the ways of Jesus, that is a life of service to other people. If you were to sit with the Apostle Paul and say, hey, <coughs> I love Jesus. I hate people. They annoy me. He, Paul would probably... I, don't know, I like to think Paul would like smack you, but I don't know if that's what he would do. But it wouldn't make sense to him because for him, the, the life of Jesus is a life of service to other people. We, we, we cannot say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand others. And I think that a lot of us struggle with that. Maybe I'm playing my hand too much on my own sin problems, right? But like really, the way of Jesus is a life of service. There, there's no area where you, you get to just say, I'm not going to serve. Because Christ served us. He gave his life for us as a ransom. We want to reflect that as we serve other people love them. So here real soon when we send out some sign-up sheets for some service opportunities, we expect some serious response because of Paul, right? Um, this, this section of scripture <coughs> uh, refers to something that's been called Christian hedonism. Um, hedonism can be a real bad thing or a real good thing. The idea behind hedonism, and some of y'all have heard it, uh, Pastor John Piper, that's like his thing. Um, he, he's preached amazing sermons on Christian hedonism. He's written books on Christian hedonism, had conferences on it. It's amazing. But hedonism is essentially saying, I want the most joy out of life that I can get. Now, outside of Christ, hedonism is a nightmare. Because people search for joy in all kinds of things that are wicked and evil and awful. And they say, I want what I want when I want it, and if my life's about this, me being happy, I'm going to do whatever I want. And hedonism can be just ugly fleshliness. Christian hedonism is saying, I actually believe God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's Christian hedonism. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And it's not just joy. But it's joy, it's contentment, it's meaning, it's identity. It, it, this is saying that God will, his glory will be put on display by a people who are satisfied in him. Who don't need more, think they need more than Jesus. God is most glorified in us and we're most satisfied in him. So satisfaction in Christ changes our view of life. Satisfaction in Christ is also something that changes our view of death. Satisfaction in Christ is better than anything that, anything that death can take away. Satisfaction in Christ is better than anything that death can take away. Now, 
what can death take away? The, the people who are most dear to us. The, the people who mean the most to us. That's what death can take away. So how, how do we reckon with satisfaction in Christ being better than anything death can take away? Because when we reckon with what death can take away, it gets pretty serious pretty quickly. For Paul, first we'll look at Paul. For Paul, the ultimate purpose of death was that it would usher him into the presence of Jesus. His, his view of death had changed. Can you imagine if he was in the circumstance of being in prison and waiting what's a likely execution and his view of death had not been changed by Jesus? He'd be freaking out. The main goal would be, don't get executed. Like, it, he saw death as the thing that would usher him into the presence of Jesus. That was where Paul was. I would, I would just ask, do you long for that? Like, it's a hard question, but how much thought have you given to the reality that when you die, you'll experience, if you're in Christ, you'll experience the, the greatest thing that you could ever experience, which is being welcomed into the presence of Jesus to hear the words, enter into the joy of your master, well done, good and faithful servant. If you have your faith in Jesus, do you give much thought to what happens when you, when you come to that point? Do you, are you filled with joy and encouragement at what um, death can't do because of what Jesus did do? How much thought do we give to that? Another thing that happened here is that the satisfaction in Christ that Paul has helped him to eliminate the fear of man and his need to control people and circumstances. You never see, like, I'm a high justice guy. So I'm like reading this, and I'm like, Paul shouldn't even be in jail. Where's the webpage, the Justice for Paul webpage? Like, how do we, he shouldn't even be there. People need to know who that guy is. He shouldn't be in a, in a cell, in the clank. He's Paul. He loves Jesus. This is just not right. Like, He's, you don't see Paul over there fashioning a shiv or a shank out of whatever he can find so that he can get one over on the guards and get out of there. His satisfaction in Christ helped to eliminate the fear of death, helped to eliminate then the fear of man so that he would have no need to try to control people and circumstances. When y'all feel out of control, do you sometimes become a little overbearing? Sometimes? Any control freaks up in the house this morning? So th this is a reality. When, when we're, you know, in a situation that, you know, anything that's, that's uncomfortable, that's not what we would prefer, a lot of times we kind of default into control freak mode. And we try to control people and circumstances. And I was thinking about it this morning, and I, I was thinking about the reality that I wish it wasn't the case, but it is the case that I'm, just so many people I engage have church hurt. Rarely do I meet anybody these days that's like, man, I grew up in church and I have, I have no scars or wounds. Generally, they've been wounded and scarred by people that they would have said were closer than family. It's not abnormal to have that story. And a lot of times, even in the church world, when we have church hurt and we have things that have happened, we go into this mode of trying to control people and control circumstances. And I just think it's worth mentioning because Paul's in jail, maybe going to be executed, and he's not doing that. He's not trying to control people. 
He's not trying to control circumstances. He is entrusting himself and he is entrusting his loved ones to Jesus. I would just wonder, I'd ask, what would that be like in your life? To, to rather than trying to control, to entrust loved ones, circumstances, the things that frustrate you, what would it look like to entrust those things to Jesus? Now I want to be careful because as we talk about the, the satisfaction of Jesus being better than anything that death can, can take away from us, this does not mean that there's no room for sorrow. Please hear this, church. It does not mean that there's no room for sorrow. But it does mean that you don't have to settle for sorrow without joy. You hear that? It's different. It would, it would feel like we had no empathy at all to say, Jesus is Lord, stop mourning. That's not how this works. But it does mean that in your mourning, you don't have to mourn, you don't have to be filled with sorrow that's void of that balance of joy that is constant. We're described as a people, um, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief. And his people are described as a people who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so there's a reality here of balance, and I just want to make sure we see it this morning. It's Memorial Day. There can be some in this room right now who maybe served with someone in, in armed forces, and, and, they, and you came home and they didn't. And that's a hurt. That's a loss. That's something death took away because they died in the service to their country. Maybe it was you were waiting on a child to come home and they didn't come home. Maybe you're waiting on a spouse to come home or a friend and they didn't come home because they gave their life in the sacrifice of defending their country. There's other people in here who have buried children. We're on the heels of COVID where we lost loved ones that like it was very fast and it was very unexpected. The Uvalde school shooting, 21 lives lost because they're evil. I had this moment where I'm watching the debrief on the TV while my kids are playing in the backyard with their friends. And I, it's hard to imagine what those parents had when they're, you know, they're, they're getting the worst nightmare of a call that they could ever get, right? And so as we have all these things going on right now, I want to make sure that we see that that does not mean that there's no room for sorrow. It's just the beauty, beautiful reality in Jesus that you don't have to settle for sorrow that's void of joy. I want to go back to that quote that we just read. Ed Welch. The greatest need of all humanity is that God be acknowledged and worshipped as the Holy One of Israel. Do you believe that when you watch the news? You believe that when you watch those debriefings. That the greatest need of all humanity is that God be acknowledged and worshipped as the Holy One of Israel. Do you realize it is not cruel to say that to a mourning parent? The thing that people need is to see Jesus. That is our greatest joy and satisfaction. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. They need to see people who are willing to live a life of hard work and good fruitful labor as they serve other people. Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers. Like that, that wasn't his idea, just so you know. Stole it straight from Jesus, right? And so th there's this beautiful reality that we have that we don't have to say there's no room for sorrow. We don't have to fake it till we make it. We can be sorrowful and yet full of joy because of what Jesus has done. Christ conquered death. Scripture refers to death as an enemy, not a friend. 
So this isn't saying, act like death is just a friend, no big deal. No, death is the last enemy to be conquered, and Jesus conquered death. So in him there is eternal life. And man, it steadied Paul when he was in a, a tight spot. You might be sitting here wondering, okay, how did Paul get like that? Like you might be sitting here wondering, okay, I've never been in prison in that, in that way because I was preaching the gospel. It was unfair. Like, but how did Paul get like that? You might be sitting here this morning thinking, I'm sitting here full of anxiety, uncertainty, and fear, and I worry too much about what people think. I try to cope with my fears about life and death in ways that I really don't want anyone to know about. You might be thinking, I'm in a constant state of hurry, and I just spend most of my life distracted, so I don't have to think too much about the things that make me miserable. You may be thinking, I've gone days, weeks, months, and even years without joy. You might think I'm mostly distracted and discontent. You might be thinking, how can I be more like Paul? And the answer this morning is this. Paul took Jesus literally, like he took him seriously. If you want to be more like Paul, be more like Jesus. And, and what I mean is that Paul heard what Jesus said and he put, it to, he put it into play in his life because the satisfaction in that was greater than all the other things that he had experienced. The proof was in the pudding. Let me explain it this way. Jesus said in Luke 12, 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. So Paul said, okay, I won't fear those who kill the body. We could just close it there. Try to take Jesus seriously. Try to take him at his word. Even when he speaks figuratively, know that there is literally a way that it is to impact your life. Do not fear those who kill the body. Paul, okay, I won't fear those who kill the body. And the result was boldness and joy as others found joy in Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. Had he feared those who killed the body, he wouldn't have proclaimed the gospel. So I'm over here in the corner of the prison cell trying to make a shank or a shiv to get over on the guards because we got to get out. And Paul's over here saying, don't fear those who kill the body. It's just a completely, Jesus completely changes his view of life and death and he takes Jesus seriously. Jesus said, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before man the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. So Paul says, okay, I will acknowledge Jesus before all men. That was the goal. Jesus said, guard against all covetousness, for life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. So Paul said, okay, I won't covet. I won't want what other people have. Even when most of the media that we Consume says, you don't have enough. Other people got it better and you can too. Click here. Don't covet. Okay, I won't covet. I won't spend my life on the accumulation of more stuff. And if you're sitting here this morning looking at it going, yeah, I see, I see what you're saying. Nobody's perfect. When Jesus speaks, he, he expects you to try. Like the idea isn't like, I'm going to give them my word. I'm going to breathe it out in all of its wisdom. Do whatever you want with it because nobody's perfect. That is a wrong view of life and death. That is a wrong view of everything that life can offer, a wrong view of everything that death could take away. The expectation is shoot for obedience. Don't, even, don't refrain from even taking the shot just because you know you might mess up. There is grace 
There is mercy. God gives us grace, giving us what we don't deserve. He gives us mercy means you deserve wrath, and I'm going to withhold that. I'm not going to give you what you do deserve. Keep walking. Keep pressing on. That's the nature of this whole letter. Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life. Paul says, I won't be anxious about my life. I'll trust Jesus, and I'll choose joy. I will entrust myself to the Lord. I will entrust my children to the Lord. I will entrust my loved ones to the Lord because the Lord is trustworthy. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive, so Paul says, I'll give. Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. Paul says, okay, I'll serve. It wasn't a take it or it wasn't this sort of picking and choosing thing. It was an all-encompassing reality of taking Jesus seriously. None of us would even know Paul's name if he viewed Jesus' teachings as optional. There, there wouldn't be anything to capture. None of us would even know his name if he didn't take Jesus' teachings. If he, if, he, if, he, if he viewed Jesus' teachings as optional, we wouldn't even know who he was. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, he cries out, Father, forgive them. If we don't reflect on the cross, if we don't consider the teachings of Jesus, we won't see how beautifully and wonderfully trustworthy is, trustworthy he is when he says things like, Father, forgive them. When he wants us to know that he's a good father that says, let your request be made known to me. Our trust in Jesus grows exponentially when we, when we find that we're really satisfied in him and not looking for satisfaction in other areas. Jesus ultimately changed Paul to be more like Jesus. Um, that's sanctification. The goal for all of us sitting here this morning, if we say our faith is in Christ, the goal is sanctification that day by day we're being made more like Jesus. So when in jail, Paul looks at the guards and the jailers, and he says, maybe Jesus died for them. Like some of us are thinking, how can I kill all of them so I can get out, right? Paul looks at him and says, maybe Jesus died for them, so I'm going to share the gospel. And what happens, the gospel goes to the entire imperial guard. Some of us are still over here sharpening a bone or a piece of wood, and now the gospel's going through the entire imperial guard. He looks at them, and rather than seeing enemies, he says, Jesus might have died for them. I'm going to share the gospel. Unreal. As he ministered to difficult and hard-hearted churches, Paul said, maybe Jesus died for them. So I'm going to serve them, and I'm going to share the gospel. Paul's message through the whole letter that we're going to continue to see throughout the summer is Paul saying, I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to finish the race. I'm going to lay hold of the prize. I'm going to fix my eyes on the upper call of Jesus Christ and I'm going to lead everybody else to do the same thing. Because he says, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's saying, I'm going to stay the course until Jesus, says, until Jesus says it's time to go meet him. And as I do, other people will do the same. He, he welcomes a life of hard work and fruitful labor for other people. I think the question this morning as we prepare to take the supper 
is are you most satisfied in Christ? Everybody sitting here has some areas where you're not. And so in, you can go ahead and get the supper out, the, the little plastic chalices. If, if you don't have one already, there's some in the back of the room and they'll, uh, they'll get you one. But what, what I want you all to do is open the bottom first and take the, uh, the bread out. And then we're going to open the top. If you open the top first, you will spill Jesus' blood. And we don't want to do that this morning. Okay? So you get the bottom, the bread out first. And then you open the top. And I want to share something from the night when Jesus put this thing into place. We, we do this every week as a church. But there was a time where this started. It was in the upper room before Jesus was, was taken. And ultimately led to the cross. And so Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way that he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we take the supper, we are looking back on what Jesus has done so that it will shape our view of life and it will shape our view of death. And we're also looking forward to the fact that the next time Jesus takes this will be with us in eternity. Which, views our, which shapes our view of life and shapes our view of death. He goes on to say, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink the cup. So this morning I want to encourage you, do not take this flippantly. Consider what the text has revealed to us. Consider how the Holy Spirit is moving. Can examine yourselves. Spend some time, even as we're singing, to examine yourself. Say, Lord, search me. Show me where I am not satisfied in Jesus. And help me to move in repentance. So, in reflection and in anticipation, take and eat. Take and drink.